back. Episode number four. A new kind of therapy podcast. Not self-help, but self-submission. It's Paige McBride. Um, if you're still here listening, then that's cool. I'm glad. Thank you. Um, I still don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm going to keep doing it until someone asks me to stop or potentially despite people asking me to stop. We'll see. Um, today we are talking about when God offends us. Um, this is a particular interest of mine because I'm an Old Testament lover and, and a lot of people find that when they read the Old Testament, they end up offended too often. And then they make their um, picture of the, the New Testament God as a more loving, tolerant, gracious, welcoming God. Um, and then they have a little bit of a distaste for the Old Testament God. But as a champion of the Old Testament, someone who believes in its beauty, um, I have thought about this a lot, just thinking about um, what it was happening when God offends us and how we should react to that. Um, and if maybe, just maybe, there's some beauty in what we first find offensive. So thanks for listening today, and let's um, let's jump into it. So I always like to talk culture on here because you know I love the Bible, but I also really love thinking about the ways in which it communicates to our specific time and place and the worldviews and assumptions that are popular. Um, and I think a, a certain assumption that uh, is widespread in our culture today is that if something is offensive, it's wrong. Um, that's actually an immoral thing to do something that is offensive. Um, and I think that's also because we've equated tolerance with love and we've equated tolerance with affirmation. And therefore we've equated affirmation with love. So if you stuck with me there, what I'm trying to say is tolerance has become kind of the virtue of our society. Like it's, it is what a good person is tolerant above all things. Um, and so things like, uh, well, I won't get into that. My point is, is that Tolerance, this idea that you allow people to do whatever they want, which is also built on a, a relativism framework in which most people think that there really is no right way to do a lot of things. They just think it's up to you. It's your truth, right? So we have this relativism that's becoming widespread and therefore tolerance is their response to relativism because no one can say that what's right for them is right for everybody else. So you have to be tolerant, right? Um, and so then if you want to be loving, if you want to be a good person, you have to be tolerant. And, and they've taken the word tolerant, not just to mean allowing other people to live as they may, but actually celebrating and affirming people as they live as they may. And uh, I think that's where they really start to depart from a biblical picture of tolerance, because tolerance is definitely something that we can find in the Bible, something that we can support um, through a Christian worldview. But um, to celebrate everything people do is not something that we can do as Christians. Um, the Bible says, woe to those who call what is evil good and call what is good evil. Um, Isaiah says that to the people of Israel because they've just lost touch with what is truly good and what is truly evil. So to, to take that step from being tolerant all the way to being affirming um, is a no-no. And, and I've talked about that actually in the self-love gospel episodes, if you're interested in that, go there. But my point is, is that because everything is about tolerance and, and tolerance used in a strong sense, in the sense that most people use it, meaning you actually have to encourage people in, in their separate ways. 
um, even if you think differently from them. Um, because tolerance is at the top of our virtue pyramid, um, offensive actions always end up being immoral because they they hurt people who see things differently than you. They, they offend them. They, they come across to them as intolerant, right? An offensive action is intolerant. Um, that's not sensitive to people who see things differently than you. Um, and like I said, I'm not arguing that the Bible does not call us to be mindful of other people's feelings and other people's struggles um, and beliefs, but it certainly does not tell us to celebrate um, non-biblical beliefs and um, and things that people fight for that are and live for that are not true. So, so the the offensive, I think, is a per particularly pressing topic today um, because we really don't like offensive things, and I think that that's um, not new in history, but that it has a, spe a specific um, peculiarity today with the certain cultural sentiments that are popular, especially among young people. Um, so, so then we come to the Bible, and and we actually are willing to make such. Um, bold statements as if God is immoral because he offends us. And I, and I want to look into that, uh, uh, that logic today, that if someone offends you, that makes them immoral. Um, and this idea that we're going to morally evaluate God um, describes a certain arrogance that runs rampant within us rather than assuming God's goodness um, and, and allowing the stories that first have come across to us as offensive to lead us into truth and then also lead us into delighting in goodness where we can actually put on the glasses of truth and see, wow, what first offend me has turned it out to be beautiful. Um, and so I want to just start real quick um, in the Gospel of John. I am going to go to the Old Testament eventually and just talk through some passages and how I think what we believe is offensive actually turns out to be um, some really life-giving truth. But I want to go to this specific conversation in John 6 that Jesus has. I'm flipping there right now. Um, so so Jesus just had recently fed the 5,000. And then he has this encounter when he makes these kind of crazy claims um, with a crowd of Jewish people. And I want us, us to take a look at what's going on in this passage and how people miss out on the beauty of the gospel because they're so um, convinced that if something offends them, that it can't be right and that it can't be good. Um, so Jesus fed 5,000 people and then he walks on water to his disciples. And the next day a crowd is still there on the other side of the sea. Um, and they're trying to find Jesus and, um, they find him and they're like, Rabbi, where'd you go? I guess they want more food. And Jesus in his typical, just mysterious fashion, he's like, don't work for food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the, which the son of man will give to you. Um, so, you know, he says something really spiritual, whatever, and they're all confused because they're just hungry. Um, and, and then eventually Jesus in verse 32 claims to be the bread from heaven. And if, if you know your old Testament at all, you know that in the time after the Exodus and in the wilderness, God provided his people with a divine source of food. Um, so that they would not perish out in the wilderness. And it was manna. It was the bread from heaven. Um, and Jesus says, uh, he is being super bold. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is verse 32. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Um, and I don't know if you know what he's doing here, but he's saying it's him. Okay. And there he goes in verse 35. Uh, they, they ask before that, sir, give us this bread always. They're like, we want some manna hit us up. And Jesus says, uh, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Um, and then they are confused and quite offended. Um, it says in verse 41, so the Jews grumbled against him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they're like, isn't this just Jesus, the son of Joseph? Like, how is he saying that he came down from heaven? Um, and, and so this dispute begins because Jesus takes something from their tradition and makes a bold statement on it that they're not ready to, to hear. Um, and they start grumbling against him. Um, and, and I, I want us to look at how Jesus approaches um, something that he says that is offensive. So, so it continues on um, and Jesus says to them, don't grumble among yourselves. Um, and, and then he continues. So naturally to add insult to injury, Jesus continues and he kind of just leans in even more. So, you know, our tendency would be like, okay, you're starting to offend people, back off. Um, but not Jesus here. Um, he starts saying in verse 47 that whoever believes him has eternal life. He says it again, verse 48, I am the bread of life. And then he's, oh, he's really getting at him here. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so get this. The Jews are, are going nuts now. Verse 52, right after that, it says, the Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Um, and and they're, they're confused and they're angry. He's, he's saying that Moses isn't the greatest, that he's actually going to do something far greater than Moses. And then on top of that, he says something just straight up gross. He's like, like insinuating cannibalism or something. Um, and, and the people here, they're offended. Yeah, even the disciples, the disciples, verse 60, they say this, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Do you hear that? They go from, this is a hard saying, or this is a saying that offends us, confuses us, um, just kind of ticks us off. And then they go to this, who can listen to it? They, they start to make the very logical progression that I think most people today make. Um, it's not a new thing. They say, this is offensive, so I'm not going to listen to it. That, that, that It can't be right if it offends me. Um, and literally Jesus, uh, it says in verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Come on, LOL, that's funny, right? Like, <laughs> he already knows. And he's like, oh, is this offensive to you guys? I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, maybe don't do that. Like, I know he's Jesus. So like, we're going we're gonna to say that like, he's, he's allowed to be like a little bit of a savage here. Um, but maybe let's not be that sassy though. You know, maybe he said it really nice. I don't know. I'm, I'm reading my mind into this text. Like Jesus is like, Oh, I'm sorry. I did not offend you. Uh, he probably didn't say it in that belittling way, but I digress. Um, what I want you to see here is that, that Jesus is, is trying to pull them in to say, does this offend you? And then he's going to continue to show them that actually if something offends them, that's not a reason not to listen to it. Um, so I want to go backwards for a second. Um, Jesus continues on after they're like, how can we eat your flesh? Um, 
He goes on to go even deeper. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the son of the man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Okay. So he continues on. And what we know as readers is what he is saying here is actually the gospel, right? I mean, this is the good news that, that those who call in faith on Jesus, that, that take of his flesh and take of his blood, we know that those are, are the redeemed, that those are those that don't have to die because Jesus's blood was shed in their place. His flesh was broken in their place, that he took the, the punishment and the wrath that they deserve. And so we know that this is the beautiful, oh, so beautiful message of the gospel. But for the people who heard it for the first time, they were straight offended. They didn't like it, right? And, and so it actually says that in verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. Even after Jesus says that the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, he says, I know that you don't see it. I know that what I just said is offensive to you. Do you take offense at this? But the words that I spoke are to you are spirit and life. But he says, there's still some of you that don't believe. And so then some of the disciples leave in verse 66. And, and then this is what happens. This is beautiful. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. I mean, usually Peter is the worst, except after uh, Jesus rises from the dead, then he gets pretty epic. But here, there, Peter gives an example to us of what faith means. He says, Jesus, where the heck would we go? We know you have the words of life and it doesn't matter if you say something crazy like eat my flesh. We are going to trust that what you say is indeed spirit and is indeed life. Where else would we go? No one has the riches and the wisdom that you have, Lord Jesus. We're not going anywhere, right? And, and Peter is the one who trusts to say, right now, I don't get it. Like if you would have asked Peter to explain what the heck Jesus was talking about with the eating his flesh stuff, drinking his blood, Peter would not have known. We, we know this, okay? Because every time that Jesus says he's going to go and die on the cross, he says it all the time to his disciples. And all the time they're just like, huh? They just don't get it, okay? So it's not that Peter understood what Jesus was saying or even that it didn't offend him. It, it doesn't say that Peter wasn't offended. It just said that he trusted. He trusted that what, what was offensive to him would one day turn out to be beautiful to him. And he was so right because this is a, a, a picture of what Jesus would go on to do and then what Peter would go on to proclaim to the entire world and, and give up his life for, right? This very message of Jesus' flesh and his blood would end up being Peter's entire life. Um, and, and so I just want you to see here that Jesus is giving us an example here that the offensive is often actually beautiful if we just take the time to trust in God, to trust in him, to say, where else would we go? No, nowhere else has the words of eternal life. No one else is the Holy One of God, Jesus. Where else would we go? And so I'm challenging you as you open up the scriptures and you see things that you don't like, let's take on the mindset of Peter as we enter into some of these Old Testament passages. And, and let's remind ourselves that when we don't get it, faith comes into play. Humility comes into play. 
And we realize that the very things that might offend us could end up being the gospel, the, the good news. I, that's just a good word that, man, I think it's really important for all Bible reading because the Bible's going to say a lot of things that don't rub us the right way. And um, Peter's given us a really cool example here um, of what it means to respond in faith when God offends you, um, in faith and humility and in waiting, because Peter didn't figure out why these words were words of eternal life until Jesus died and rose from the dead and reappeared to them. Then it started to click. And, and you know, it even says that, you know, then their eyes were open and they started to get it, right? So it seems as though God was maybe even, put, like, trying, like, a, intentionally holding off so that, that, that they wouldn't understand it yet, so that it would take faith to continue. Um, and so maybe God doesn't make everything nice and pretty and put together at first for us. Maybe he asks and calls us to faith when we don't, when we don't get it. And when, in fact, not only do we not get it, but we don't like it. It's really easy to accept things you don't understand, but that you like. It's a whole other thing to accept something that you don't understand and really don't like at first. And so God calls us in faith and says, trust me. Do you believe that I'm good? Do you believe that I'm holy? Then I will not lead you astray. Come on in. Let, let's sit in the offensive truths of God and actually find out that they are therapeutic. Therapeutic. Maybe the offensive could be therapeutic. Turns out our culture is so obsessed with being therapeutic that they reject the very things that actually would help them because they're not willing to trust that what at first offends them might turn out to be for their good. So, so let's be willing to get uncomfortable. And then we'll actually find out that when we go to uncomfortable places, God comforts us with life-giving truth. So let's let's turn to the Old Testament now. So in 1 Chronicles 13, we have this scene. Uh, this is during uh, David's reign. And um, we, we see that David wants to bring the ark back into Jerusalem. So the ark is a really important um, piece of furniture that operated in Israel's worship. It was where God's presence rested. Um, it was in the Holy of Holies in, in the tabernacle that God gave um, as a design to Moses to build um, and as designed in the temple with Solomon. And so this was kind of the ultimate piece of worship furniture that allowed God's presence to rest on it. It had the cherubim, which kind of calls back to Genesis where um, as Adam and Eve are tossed out of the garden, it says that two cherubim guarded the, the entrance to the, the Garden of Eden um, because now God's presence was barred off from Adam and Eve, right? And so the idea that there was cherubim on the ark is bringing back this Eden imagery of this is off limits now. Um, the holy God rests here and his rebellious wayward uh, people cannot just come as they please. And so um, there's numerous, numerous um, passages on how the ark was to be handled, designed, um, and who was allowed to come into the Holy of Holies, how they were allowed to come in, when they were allowed to come in. Um, and basically the, the temple, in essence, is just a big, fancy, dramatic, intricate way of saying God is holy. And that means it's going to take a lot of effort if you want him to dwell among you. 
right? So, so the people, God brings them out of Egypt and he says, I want to dwell among you. I want to be you to be my people. I want to be your God. And so they're, they're to make this tabernacle where God can come and dwell. Literally a dwelling place is what the tabernacle is in the Hebrew. And and so, so God does this. It's also called the tent of meeting where Moses can come to, to meet God, right? But it's going to take all these regulations and the people are going to have to be ceremonially clean. They're going to have to have their sin atoned for and whatnot in order to have access to the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant lied. Um, and so for a while now, the Ark had actually been off in someone's house um, in Kiriath, Jerem, um, and David, in you know, in, in, a, in a good sense, wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He wants the presence of God and the symbol of this presence, the ark, to be back in the in Jerusalem. Um, and so he says in verse three of chapter thirteen, First Chronicles, he says, um, "Let us bring, let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul." So basically, he's saying Saul, who was an evil king, if you're not too familiar. Um, well, a king con gone pretty bad. David says, we did not seek the ark, meaning we didn't seek the presence of the Lord. We didn't seek his provision um, in the days of Saul. Let's bring it back. And it says, all the ag assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So they're bringing back the ark. So David assembles um, all of Israel to bring the ark back. Um, and he wants to basically throw this this party for the entrance of the ark and everything is looking good. Um, and so it says that David went up to bring up um, from the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim. So, so hear that that's in verse um, the end of verse six. This is really important before any of this stuff goes down. The, the writer of Chronicles wants you to, to know something about the ark. It seems like he is just throwing in there a random detail about the ark. He says, um, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. Why did the author feel the need to give this little description of the ark to us? We have other spots in scripture where the ark is described, where we know what it is. What is it that made the author want to add in this detail? Well, I, I think it's there to, to prepare us almost or clue us in, remind us of the truth of what, what sacred of an object this ark is. And then it, it prepare our hearts for uh, what's about to happen because it, it appears when when we look at the text that David and the other people were certainly not prepared. And it almost makes me think that had they meditated on that truth that the that the ark was called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned on the cherubim, that it was a sign of His presence, that He dwelt among them, um, and that it was a holy object representing that presence of a holy God. Uh, I wonder if that would have given them the correct approach to the object, which we'll see they did not have. So if, if you continue on in the story, um, it's, it sounds really great. In verse 8, David and all of Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. So they're going ham, celebrating. It's like, this is epic. The ark's coming back. Um and then it says, without really any transition, and when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the ox stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. So without much warning at all, it's tambourines and cymbals and dancing around and singing, and then boom, there's a dead man. And it's because this, this Uzzah, 
who uh, had apparently been with the Ark for, for quite some time um, while it was uh, being stored at a uh, home in Kiriath Jerim, he reaches out because the ox stumble. And so he, he wants the Ark not to fall. And then it just says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the Ark and he died there before God. Um, so I think this at first seems one, like just a huge party pooper, like what the heck God, they were so pumped for, to bring the ark back in. It's almost seems like a religious revival. Like they didn't seek this in the times of Saul, right? That's what David said. He's like, let's bring it in. Let's seek God. And then boom, God strikes a man dead. And we're just thinking, you know, the people are, they want to worship you, God. Why, why are you making this so difficult? Um, and I think it's because of what was mentioned there earlier, that the ark is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And, and so they didn't understand that worship of a holy God was in some sense dangerous. And let's just pause here for a moment and remember that if we are good Old Testament readers, we will know that God has hammered this home so many times that they've got to be careful coming to him because they are a sinful wayward people approaching a holy God who is just and full of wrath and completely pure. Um, and so they were warned not to touch this ark. They, sh they knew this. They knew this. Do not touch that ark. The, the, the normal people weren't even supposed to go anywhere near the ark. If you go back and read from Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus about um, the procedures with the holy things, this stuff was given to them in utter detail of who could touch what and move what and how to move it and when to move it. Um, and so there's just a, a disregard here of the the ways in which God had demanded that they worship him because he's holy. So in a recognition of his holiness, they were to worship him exactly how he said. And not only because they recognized he was holy, but he also that he also cared about them and he wanted them to live. He wanted them to thrive. The dwelling of God could either be a great blessing or a great curse, depending on if the people could approach him in the way in which he has demanded that they do. And so we see in verse 11, David is offended. He says, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Broken out. He, it says David is angry. And he's probably thinking what most of us are thinking. We were trying to do a good thing here. And now there's a dead guy because God is mad at us. Meanwhile, we were trying to, to worship him. How could this happen? And then it moves on in verse 12, and it seems the tone changes a bit. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. So the story seems to end in this just like, how can I even do this? Like, is it even possible to wor to worship such a God that is, is so holy that we come too close and we die? How can I bring the ark home? How can I even worship God? And so at first he's angry and then he's afraid. But I want you to see how this progresses. It kind of moves on. And in chapter 14, there's a whole nother section. Um, and then in chapter 15, it says that um, David built houses for himself, palace. Um, and then it says, we're back to it. He prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it, right? And then get this, verse 12, it says, Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, 
may, may carry the ark of God for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. Hear that. Finally, David, bright guy he is, decides, hey, maybe if we wanted to worship God, we should just look at how he told us to do it and do it that way. And so he went back into his Torah, the Mosaic law, and he found out, well, golly gee, God said that the Levites were the ones, specifically a, a specific uh, lineage within the Levites were the ones who were supposed to carry the ark and they were supposed to carry it with these um, poles so that they didn't actually touch the ark. Um, and there was all these very specific provisions so that they could transport the ark. And this goes all the way back to their time in the wilderness when they were moving the ark around all the time as they followed God. And so David is finally starting to get his senses together and realizes, okay, I'm just going to do this God's way. Um, and so he, he prepares it. He consecrates the priests and the Levites. Um, and he tells them, he says, consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I prepared for it. Now hear this, verse 13. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Do you hear that? Because we did not seek him according to the rule. So if you're wondering what exactly happened back in chapter 13 when God killed Uzzah, it's because they did not seek him according to the ways that he had told them to. Their obedience was of utmost importance, not just because God said so, but because they could die, right? Their interactions with the holy God uh, were not just whatever they wanted. Worship was not whatever your preference was. And man, could we go into what that means for modern day worship. But my point here is that it was offensive to David that God had the nerve to prove himself holy and to do exactly what he said he would do if they approached him in the wrong way. David was angry. Then he turned to afraid and then he turned to obedient. From angry and offended to afraid and confused to obedient and blessed. Do you see that progression? And so the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. In verse 15, they're doing things the way God said to do them. Um, and the ark makes it in to the city of David um, and they're dancing. David's dancing. Some girl sees him and is mad because he's dancing out there in his, in his linen. But that's not the point. It all goes well. The ark's in um, and it's placed and Israel is pumped. And so I want you to notice there how the, the holiness of God is an offense to people who don't take it seriously. But if you can go from offended and angry at God for his holiness and then move as David did into a, a, a fear of the Lord. And in here, fear of the Lord is not just respect. It's also he's scary. He just killed a guy. He's straight up scary. We don't like that. No one in the West wants a scary God. But here it is. This is the God you get. Take him or leave him, leave him, but you don't get to make up your own, okay? And so David turns then to a point of fear of the Lord and even confusion saying, how can I worship this God? He says, how can I bring the ark into the city of David? How can I do it? He's confused. He's, he's flabbergasted. He's afraid. He doesn't know how to move forward. So he goes from anger to confusion and then finally to obedience. He goes back to the word of God. Mm -mm, that's a word. Go back to the word of God. And he sees that God had given specific regulations for how worship ought to be done. And he does it God's way and finds blessing in it. 
and God's presence rested in the city of David and guarded David and went with David for the rest of his life. And soon uh, from David's seed would bring the very man, Jesus Christ to us. Right. And so this is such a, interesting story to me. It, it, David seems to reflect Peter in John 6, where at first they're kind of incredulous, like, how could you say that? Or how could you do that? And then from their confusion and frustration, they slowly move into an attitude of humility and submission that says, you know what? I trust you, God, that if I do things your way, it's going to work out. Um, and in, in both situations, those men get rewarded for their faithfulness um, and are blessed by it. And so I think these are two interesting stories, and surely there are so many more we can find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, but I think they offer a sort of paradigm for us of when we're offended by God to allow that to lead us to a point of, you know, if it angers you at first, so be it. But then let that point you to uh, a fear and then to a confusion and then to a reflection on God's word and submission and obedience finally and delight delight. David ended this dancing. He ended dancing, right? And, and because he did things God's way. Um, and so I think this is such an interesting example from both David and Peter for us about when God offends us. I want to turn to one last passage in Job because um, it's not always the holiness of God that offends us, though I think that is uh, right now, a really common phenomenon, just, just be offended by God's greatness and purity and perfection and holiness. We want a God that's really approachable, really friendly. Um, we love that picture of God with open arms. And surely the, the New Testament provides a God with open arms through Jesus Christ. But first, uh, uh, before that, you have to understand that the arms were closed before because because of sin. So I, I think the holiness thing often offends us. And so that's what I wanted to focus on. But um, the world and how God operates in it also offends us often. And we have so many examples of people and prophets in the Old Testament coming before God, um, questioning him because of the evil that he allows to go on in the world. And some of them is on the basis of knowing and believing that God is good and righteous and just. And, and so just confusion in that. You see that in a lot of the prophets, like, God, why aren't you showing up? Um, but I want to end this note of trusting God when he offends you to to allow God to lead you into actually delight um, in who he actually is and not who you want him to be. Um, I want to end that discussion with a note on humility, because I think that plays a role in all of this. It, it's pride that thinks that we can make God in our own image, right? We need to make sure we flip that. We were made in God's image. God's not made in our image, okay? And so we don't get to create the patterns off of which God should act and be. God creates the patterns off which we should act and be. Um, and when Eve, you know, saw the fruit as delightful, she was also had a shift in her theology where she thought that she was more authoritative to deem something good or beautiful or um, practical. She thought she was more authoritative than God to decide on that. She actually set aside what he had proclaimed and decided that her perception was more trustworthy. And I, that's, that's, that's a pride. And that's why a lot of scholars and just, you know, Christians who read their Bible tell you that, that at the base of sin is pride. The lie that you can, you can tell God how things are and not just submit to what God says. And so I think humility is such an important part in this idea of God's offensive qualities to us. Because just because something offends us does not mean we get to change it. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying that everything that's offensive is good. Certainly, 
um, the Christian's life is not to be an offensive one in general. Um, and, and neither was Christ's life uh, overall offensive in the sense of that wasn't his goal. But sometimes with truth comes offense. So I'm going off again. Let's turn back. I want to go to Job. Um, so in Job, um, you know, Job's a good man. We hear at the beginning of the book and God allows Satan to make him suffer greatly. He loses everything he has, people, wealth, property, animals, friends, and his own health. He's just deteriorating. And the whole book is this question of what the heck is going on? Doesn't God give good to people who are good and give bad to people who are bad? So is Job bad because he's suffering? And, and these guys argue back and forth and back and forth. And then finally, in this like huge climax, um, God is going to speak to Job. And we're like, finally, we're going to get an answer here to why suffering happens to, to good people. And it's like, oh, thank goodness. Um, and then God does this. In chapter 38, um, it says, then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. First of all, just notice that God's approach in this situation is not a whisper. We've seen spots in the Old Testament where God is it communicates himself in a whisper. But here he's coming in a whirlwind whirlwind. He wants you to know that he is powerful and that he is scary um, and big. Uh, and so the fact that God appears in a whirlwind, I think is uh, in, an important part of understanding the passage. And he says this, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dress for action like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. So God says, who is this peasant? That's, that's the message translation from me. <laughs> Who is this peasant that is is actually darkening my ways, my counsel, uh, when he actually has no knowledge of the ways in which, the infinite ways in which I rule the universe? He says, fine, you want to play? You better man up because I'm going to start asking you the questions and let's see if you can answer me. And so then he starts just going off in verse four. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You know, or verse 12 is, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Like he's just going off on Job, asking him all these questions that obviously Job cannot answer or he just has to say, no, that, that's not me, God. Um, and it's kind of like, wow, first Job just gets everything taken away from him. And then God shows up and you're thinking he's going to comfort him. And he just totally pumbles him and just says, how dare you question me? Um, and in the end, you know, God does give um, a, a kind word to Job and actually greatly blesses him. And we see that. But what I, what I want us to take note from this is that humility and understanding God's ways and his character is of utmost importance. Job never even got an answer about why he suffered so much. You know, God could have said, actually, the devil was targeting you and he wanted to prove that you didn't actually care about me. So I said, fine, go ahead, give it a try. Like God could have explained to Job what was happening behind the scenes. But instead of explaining it all, God said, humble yourself before me, humble yourself before me. And I think this is so important in any situation in which we feel offended by the Bible or by God. We have to come in a posture of humility that says, I know that you will not reveal to me everything about how you're doing stuff. But I'm thankful that you've revealed anything to me and I will cling to those things and I will 
immerse myself in those promises of who you are and how you work. But when I don't get it and I'm confused, I will not come for you, right? Because I'm going to, I'm going to submit to the fact that, that you are God, you are Lord, you are almighty. And I can't understand you in all your infinite wisdom and power and love. I can't. Right. And so Job responds after this, like three chapter rant. Um, and then God's just going to do another rant after it, you know, God ends his thing saying, shall a fault finder contend with the almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. And so basically Job says, I'm a shut up. I did not, I did not realize the pride that was involved in me talking to you. Like I knew the ins and outs of how you work. And how if I that I could actually question your ways, um, and and God continues, um, and He gives him another speech, um, and then it it ends in this beautiful recognition of Job, where He says, "I know that you can do all things." This is chapter forty-two, the last chapter, verse two. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Um. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I mean, that's that's really interesting. When we are frustrated and confused, we can't go to the making claims about God and pouting. We have to go where Peter and David went and even eventually where Job goes to a point of, I, I have tried to attack something too wonderful for me. I've uttered what I do not understand. And then he, he, he talks about this, this experience in verse five. And he says, I had heard you by the hearing of ears, but now my eyes see you. Now my eyes see you. For Job, what he needed was to see God in all his power. He didn't actually need an answer to all of his questions. And that's something for me that is in some sense disappointing, but also really convicting and I think life-giving to hear that God doesn't always answer your questions that, that offend you and confuse you, but he will give you a crazy revelation of who he is to allow you to realize that he is good and you can trust in him um, and to let you actually see him and not just hear of him. And so he doesn't end up answering Job's questions, um, but Job comes to a place of contentment because he rests in God's infinitude instead of fights back at it. Um, and may we do that with God's holiness, with his justice, with his discipline, with anything that he says that rubs us the wrong way first. Um, may we come and say, I'm going to rest in that and not fight that. Um, so that's my word. And I, I want to qualify everything that I've said this episode with a final thing. Um, I think some people in Christianity's past um, have understood that the Bible goes against cultural assumptions and uh, that God is, a, you know, no crap kind of God uh, and that he really lays down the law. Um, and they've taken sort of a domineering, uh, controversial leadership in the church where they're really, um, they're really confident and they're, they can be kind of mean and no grace. Um, and they're offending a lot of people and they kind of do it in the name of the Bible. And I just want to say that that's not what I, that's not what I'm 
presenting here. I don't want you to go off and offend people for the sake of offending people. Jesus' words were often words of comfort and grace. We just have to learn the balance between how grace and love go together with truth and with sometimes offense. The word of the cross was a word of offense. Paul talks about this, that like it was offensive to people. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. Like the Jews could not grasp the idea that a God would be like humiliated and crucified on a cross. They couldn't worship a God like that. That's humiliating. Why would I worship a guy nailed to a cross? And so some of what is most beautiful about Christianity can be offensive and, and we can rest in that. But there are plenty of passages that warn us from this idea of not considering other human beings and um, how we act and how we represent Christ. And so this is not me saying, go out there and be a jerk, lay down the law, tell everybody that they're going to die. This doesn't necessarily mean we need all fire and brimstone preaching. There's a place for that. Um, but then you balance that out with the, the rest of the biblical narrative um, that also highlights and exalts God's love and grace and compassion. And so may you be filled with those things. And may you understand that God is the one who determines truth. And if it offends us, so be it. You are not the one who determines truth. Okay. So don't go out there and be like, well, sometimes things are offensive. No, if, if, if this is biblical, then you can speak words in grace and truth and say, it's okay if people are offended. But don't go out there pumbling people just for the sake of kind of stirring the pot. Um, I guess I just want to put that qualifier on all this because God may offend us sometimes, but the Christian life isn't about being offensive. Um, I just wanted to make that clear. So make sure you understand your call as a Christian to represent this God to people and how he's called us to do so. Um, and, and remember that the Bible never wants us to end in offense. It's this idea that if we stay in faith and humility when God offends us, that actually leads to something beautiful. So make sure you don't miss that beautiful truth that offended and afraid and confused by God is not the last word. It's praising and delighting in God that is the last word um, when we persevere through the times that God is offensive to us or the times that he confuses us or frustrates us. And so there's just humility and faith there. Um, so never think that your ultimate relationship with God should be one of frustration and offense. Um, it's a place where you sit only to be lifted out um, by gospel truths. It's the same thing with our sin. You know, your, your ultimate sitting place with God is not a place of guilt, right? But if we don't recognize our guilt and sit in it sometimes and recognize our shame and our sin, then the gospel doesn't nourish to us the way it should. And so it's the same thing with this idea. Let God offend you so that you can begin to delight in who he is. Um, so we're never to stay in God offending us or to stay in, and just sit in our sin and our shame. We allow the gospel to pull us out of there. But if we never go there, then I don't think we recognize who God is fully and what his love even means if we don't first understand his holiness and our sinfulness. Um, so that's my word for the day. Um, if you made it this far, thanks for hanging out. Uh, please continue to pass the podcast along if you find it helpful. Um, and as always, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bye, guys.